It's on page 1660 in your Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. This is what's happening right after Peter and John have healed the lame man in the temple. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Thanks, Sharon. Hey, everybody. Bob Grauman is going to be bringing the sermon this morning. If you know Bob, great. If you don't, um, Bob's been a member of this church for a long time. He, uh, he uh, has a small pile of graduate degrees in theology and education, stuff like that. But um, more importantly, that one of the reasons I love to have Bob um, preach here is twofold. One is he teaches Bible study all over the world to university students. And so he always does a great job handling the scriptures and teaching us out of them. And then in addition to that, he's got 30 or something years of missionary stories where he has gone all over the world to all kinds of different countries to help foster and start student movements 
in those places, and he is InterVarsity's director of um, all their long-term global mission initiatives, which is really neat. So to get to hear Bob is always a huge treat for me and a break and et cetera. So Bob, why don't you come and I'll pray. Father, we, um, we devote this time to you. We devote this time to hear your written word respoken through, through Bob. We pray that you'd use his preparation, his training, his experience, and this moment to speak through him to us. Help us have receptive, open hearts and minds ready to hear what you would say to us in this moment in relationship to the universal truths of your revealed word and help us to be changed by them, to take action on their basis and to be transformed on the spot by putting our trust in what you tell us through him. We pray that you'd come Holy Spirit and do your work now in your church in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it really is exciting to be here. Um, I think it says a lot about our pastor's um, character and trust that he opens the pulpit of this church to a number of different speakers. And it is a great, yes, thank you. And it's a great privilege uh, to be among those speakers. And you probably notice that each of the speakers has some quirks. You know, the pastor has his keys hanging out of his side, which my generation, I'm like, what keys on his side? Anyway, and Vince um, uh, preaches without notes. At least I said that in the first service and Vince came running up to me and said, no, I don't. But I said, if you've got notes, you never look at them. So it seems that he preaches without notes. And uh, I just have, I just love to be on the floor. Uh, when I preach, it, feel, it makes me feel closer to you uh, rather than be on the stage. So that's my quirk, and that's why the pulpit is down here on the floor. As the pastor said, my name is Bob Grauman, and um, I'm a staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Been going to this church for 25 years, a missionary supported by this church all that time, um, as well as going here as our home church. And I'm the chair of the Christ Adult Christian Ed Committee. And woohoo, right? Yeah, all right. We sponsor what was called Sunday classes, which is going on right now. Um, every uh, service at 9 o'clock and 10.45 every Sunday morning, there's an amazing uh, Bible-based Sunday school class for adults where, <laughs> wow, all right. Lots of cheers, that's great. Um, you can learn the Bible. You learn know how to study the Bible more deeply and learn how to apply the Bible to situations in your life, parenting and uh, uh, marriage and financial peace and all these things as we live out our lives according to the Bible. And so come to the Sunday school, adult Sunday classes. It's awesome. My day job, as the pastor said, is um, uh, the director of long-term missions for InterVarsity. And InterVarsity is a part of this wonderful worldwide uh, ministry among students called the IFES, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. Um, the IFES is a global uh, uh, student ministry with ministries in 156 nations of the world, of which InterVarsity is one, InterVarsity USA is one member. And it gives us a, a world vision and a concern for the world. Like we're very concerned this morning for our people in Kathmandu, in um, Nepal, with that horrific uh, earthquake there. I did, uh, right after the service this morning, the first service, Jeannie Everson came up and told me to tell you about Ted and Rachel McKinney the son and daughter-in-law of Archie McKinney, well-known in this church. They're missionaries right there in Kathmandu. They are safe. They are fine. Um, in fact, talk about, I'm going to talk about prayer meetings this morning. The great prayer meeting in Acts 4 is our text. And Janie said that they were, the, the earthquake happened yesterday, Saturday, and that's the day of worship for Christians. So they were in church at a prayer meeting, and the earthquake hit. So she said they ran out and continued the prayer meeting, <laughs> finished the prayer meeting, and then ran around and helped everybody. So there's another prayer meeting. Um, but our passage is about the prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4. But before we look at that, let me take you back 
couple of hundred years to another prayer meeting in 1806 at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Um, beautiful, one of those beautiful private Christian colleges in beautiful New England. And uh, it was, it's there now, and it was there in 1806. And in 1806 at Williams College, there was a group of five students, and they would meet once a week to pray. And so they were praying uh, one morning, and it started to rain, thunderstorm. So they ran under a haystack and kept praying. And as they were praying, they felt, each of them felt a call from the Holy Spirit to be a missionary. So they made a pact. I don't think they bumped the, whatever the kids do today, but they, they made a pact to all be foreign missionaries. So they went to their churches. And they said, you know, I'd like to become a missionary. Would you support me? But in 1806, there was no such thing in North America as a foreign missionary. They didn't exist. So the churches didn't know what to do. So these five students got together some pastors and friends, donors, and got together a board. The board, the North American Board of Missions the first missionary board in North America. Well, that was called the Haystack Prayer Meeting, and it affected the world because from the North American Board of Foreign Missions came ultimately 20,000 missionaries, started by these five university students. Um, and at Williams College today, there's a memorial. The only memorial in the whole world at a secular university to a prayer meeting, to the Haystack prayer meeting. And on that uh, memorial is a little uh, sign that says, on this site, in the shelter of a haystack during the summer storm of 1806, Five William College students dedicated their lives to the service of the church around the globe. Get this sentence. Look at that sentence. Out of their decision grew the American Foreign Missions Movement. You hear that? The American Foreign Missions Movement. Any missionary, any missionary who's gone forth from America to the foreign missionary field owes a debt to this prayer meeting. That's where it started. That's where the American foreign missions movement started with five students praying together. They changed the world by praying together. Every missionary owes them a debt. Five students praying together. So our passage is about another awesome prayer meeting in the book of Acts. But let me frame it a little bit. Um, just before, and you turn it to it in your Bible on 1661 or look up there. Um, before our passage that starts in 23, verse 23, um, beginning of the passage read so well. Peter and John had healed a lame man by the power of Jesus, a man with a you know, bad leg who was begging. And they were called in to the temple where they, they stood uh, before all the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law, Caiaphas the high priest, Annas the high priest, they were all there for this interrogation of Peter and Paul, uh, Peter and John. And in verse 7, um, the high priest tossed them a softball question, right? They had Peter and John brought in and said, by what power or name do you do this? I'm sure Peter smiled. <laughs> All right, that's a great question. And he hit it out of the park with his answer. Uh, in verse 10, Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved. We did this 
O rulers of the nation, high priest, and all of the religious leaders, we did this in the name of Jesus. So it wasn't us who did it. It was Jesus who did this. And uh, then, like I say, verse 12, there's no other name. There's no other name by which we must be saved. And, you know, I work in university student ministry. And if you went to the university here or anywhere in North America or in the Western world, or probably all over the world, and gave a talk about the gospel and asked for questions, I would guess one of the first three questions would be, how can you possibly believe there's only one way to God? In this day and age, with pluralism and why aren't, you know, God's at the top of the mountain, why aren't there many paths up the mountain to get to God? Isn't it too exclusive to say there's only Jesus? But that's what these guys said at the possible cost of their lives. There's no other name, not through keeping the Jewish law, not through, you know, the Old Testament traditions, only through faith in Jesus. And um, for some reason, that's really hard for people today in our postmodern world to understand. And I have a kind of a, almost a silly illustration of that that really helped me understand this. Um, suppose I was a great medical researcher and I actually, with my team, discovered the cure for cancer. And then, like a good researcher, I took that cure and I tested it and tested it and tested it with people all of, from all over the world, from every nation and culture and political background and ethnicity. And I tested it on old people and young people and everywhere in the world, it worked. And you came to me and you had cancer. And I said, ah, we, found, we found the cure. We found the cure, it's, it's, it's this. And it's been tested. It works. I can bring you, talk to you, have you talk to people all over the world. It works. And you say, well, that's fine. But I'm upset that there's only one way. There's only one cure. So I'm not going to take the cure because I want choice. I want three cures so I can choose one. So because there's only one cure, I reject the cure for cancer. Okay? Well, all of us have a disease worse than cancer. It's called sin. And that disease in our souls is going to lead us to a very bad end eternally if we keep it there and let it grow. And God gave the cure, which is Jesus dying for our sins in our place on the cross. And if we put our faith in him, we're forgiven and we have eternal life. That's it. And people all over the world for the last 2,000 years of every race, culture, language, age, political affiliation, nationality have come to Jesus and said, yes, it works. He came into my life. My life has changed. I'm forgiven. I'm ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And then, you know, you come to me and I, you say, I have this disease, sin. And I say, here's the cure, Jesus. And you say, well, I'm upset. There's only one way. So I'm going to reject him because I want three ways to God. I don't want just one way. That's sad. That's sad. But Peter makes it really clear even to the rulers of the nation, the theologians, the scribes, the teachers. Guys, sorry, it's through the name of Jesus. That's verse 12. And then down in verse 18, the uh, rulers call them in and uh, tell them, don't speak in the name of Jesus. And pastor talked about this last week. And Peter says, come on guys, you're the rulers of the nation. Who should we listen to? You or God? Brilliant, brilliant answer. So they threatened them and kicked them out. Now, 
This is the beginning of the persecutions of the church in the book of Acts. Here they just got kicked out. But they knew this was the beginning. Because in the next chapter, they were brought in again. This time they were flogged, whipped. In, verse, in chapter 7, Stephen is actually stoned to death, the first martyr. In chapter 8, there's a general persecution on the whole church. And we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. They're scattered to Samaria. So this is the beginning of the persecutions of the church. And Peter and John knew it. They knew it. They could see what was going on. So what did they do? And that's our passage. Starting in the first line. Upon their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said. So what's the first thing they did? They went to the community. They went to God's people. Because, you know, we think of uh, what we know about the Bible or the book of Acts. We think of the heroes, the great people. Peter, John, Paul, Barnabas, Luke, you know, the disciples, the heroes. But when you really read it, yes, those names are there, and, and so they're important. But the main thing in the book of Acts is the community. The people gathered together. Ordinary people gathered together, worshiping together, called the fellowship or the people of the way or the church. That's the basic theme, one of the basic themes of the book of Acts, how God uses the community. There's only 120 of them in chapter 1, a lot more, 3,000 in chapter 2. And chapter 2 describes the life of this community, how they gave to each other, shared with each other, loved each other. Um, and even our passage, after our passage, is another description of the early community and how much they loved each other. But this is the heart, one of the hearts of the book of Acts. God's people. The first thing that Peter and John did, go back to the community. And I can tell you, um, it's so great being a part of the IFES all over the world because I go to some really unpopular places. <laughs> and, you know, you land in this little airport and you get off the plane and there's military guards always. And they don't smile. <laughs> they glare at you and you kind of walk past them and you get to the passport control where they glare at you again and they ask hard questions. What are you doing here? Why are you in our country? Um, and you get past that and you get to the, uh, the place where they tear apart your, your baggage, baggage control, they call it. And you get past that. And then you walk out those doors into the arrivals hall and there's the believers. <laughs> come to greet me, smiling, fresh face, just glowing with the love of Jesus. Maybe, uh, uh, some of them I've never met before. They knew I was coming, came to meet me at the airport. And you walk out those doors, it's just hug, love. Um, in Russia, it's from the guys. <laughs> in Germany, they shake your hand, you know. Um, but just, just love. There I am in the community with God's people. It's so beautiful. That's what these guys did. So that's the first thing. They went back, showed their commitment to God's people. Then what happened? The community prayed. They prayed. Um, they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Together they prayed, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord. That's how they started. Get their eyes on God, lift praise to Him, Sovereign Lord. What does sovereign mean? It means a king. The noun means a king, 
a supreme ruler. The adjective sovereign means possessing supreme power or in control. First thing they did is they started their prayer. Look to God and said, God, you are in control. The nations are against us. The religious rulers are against us. Things are going wrong. You're in control. That's what we believe. That's the first thing we say in our prayer of the early church. God, you're in control. And I tell you, that's the, one of the first foundational things we need to believe. Um, uh, pastor said a couple of weeks ago, something that really has stuck with me. He said in his 37 years of life, this is the worst he's ever seen the world. And I sat there and I said, yeah, I'm 30 years older than him, almost. In my 66 years, I've never seen things this bad. I've never seen so much horror, so much terror, so much murder, so much senseless, senseless violence, so much racism, so much bad feelings, so much, even politically, how uh, they just hate each other, it seems, on both sides. It's just horrible. And I, I don't understand how you can read the newspaper or watch the television for more than five minutes and not go absolutely crazy if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Because otherwise, it's just chaos. It's foundational to believe God is in control. Even things like disasters, problems. I mean, look at the, the verse 24 there. Um, and 25 and 26 and 27. Um, what was a worse disaster for the disciples just three weeks before this than the cross? Here, their teacher they were with for three years. They saw him heal people, raise people from the dead. And then he's crucified. He's beaten up by the Roman soldiers. What? What, what happened? We thought he was... Our Messiah, we thought he was going to put on his armor and get a sword and save us from the Roman Empire. What happened? What a disaster. The cross. But then, as they thought about it, you see verse 28. Um, they did what your power, God, and will had decided beforehand should happen. God's sovereign even over the biggest disaster in the disciples' life. God is in control. And I know the question. Immediately you're going to ask, it's a good question. Well, if that's so, if God's in control, are we responsible then? Can't we just sit around? No, Christianity is not fatalism. <laughs> Somehow, in the way God has set things up, we are responsible agents. We are responsible for what we do. And it says in 2 Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. We are responsible, and yet God is sovereign. How those two fit together, I do not know. But I know they're both true. God is absolutely in control. I mean, there's this famous poem about a, uh, a weaver and these great Persian rugs. If you look at one side, all you see is the threads sticking out. They look completely chaotic. And you turn around and look at the other side, it's a beautiful pattern. Well, that's the pattern God sees. We don't always see the pattern, but it's there. God is in control. That's how we start. That's how the disciples started their prayer meeting. With God in control. And then, so first they, they looked to the community, right? Peter and John went to the community. Secondly, they looked to God in prayer. 
Thirdly, in verse 25, they look to the scripture. And I, can, I, can, I was kind of imagining this prayer meeting, even as they're, they're dialoguing with God and with each other in prayer. I've been with, in prayer meetings like that. They're beautiful. They're the best. Um, so they're praying along, and they're thinking, well, what's happening? What's happening with us? Here, we're, we're just trying to heal people. We healed this lame man, and we get called in by the authorities and questioned and threatened and kicked out. What's happening? Wait a minute. That's what David said in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a Psalm of David, and he describes in the first three verses of Psalm 2, he describes the fact that the nations, the kings of the earth, will gather together against God and his son. Yes, it says that there in Psalm 2, around verse 6 or 7, that the nations will be against God and his son. And the disciples, they quote that. You see it quoted in, in that uh, verse there, in, the color, in color. And it's verse 25. They quote Psalm 2. And they say, okay, a thousand years ago, David predicted that all the kings of the earth would be against God and his son. Huh. And then just a few weeks ago, in verse 27 there, you see that they called Jesus in in front of Pontius Pilate and Herod and the people of Israel, and the whole Roman Empire was against Jesus, and they crucified him. But he rose again. And now, Peter and John just healed a layman, just like Jesus did, right? Jesus healed a, uh, a lame man in Mark chapter 2, a paralytic. And just like Jesus, Peter and John were called in before the same people. Did you notice that? It's, it's the same people that, uh, wh where is it? Yeah, that they were brought in in front of the rulers, the elders, the teachers, Annas and Caiaphas. That's the people who crucified Jesus. That's the people who did the trial of Jesus. The same people, three weeks later, call in John and Peter and say the same thing. And the early church is thinking, huh. So God said this to David a thousand years ago. Then they call in Jesus. Now we're doing the same thing. You know what, guys? You know what's happening? We are reliving Jesus' life. Or even more than that, Jesus is living his life through us. Jesus is doing the same thing through us, his community, as he did when he was in a physical body. Maybe we, the church, are the body of Christ now. Maybe we are the physical body through which Jesus works to do his miracles and his ministry in the world. Um, Pastor Lloyd brought this out when he talked about Acts 1-1, the first verse of the book of Acts. Where see, or, uh, Luke says in the first book, the book of Luke, O Theophilus, I told you all that Jesus began to do and to teach. With the implication in this book, Acts, is what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. Friends, fellow believers, Jesus is reliving his life through us. He's doing through us what he did when he was in a physical body. When you share with a neighbor, when you share with the gospel with a neighbor, that's Jesus working through you. 
when you go in May to that hope and the future place to work, that's Jesus working through you to bring hope to those people. When the deaconess help uh, someone with their spring tra- cleaning, spring cleaning, that's Jesus working through you. Jesus is living out his life through those disciples, doing in them what he did when he was in a physical body. He's doing the same today. Isn't that exciting? We're not just a group of people sitting here in these pews hearing a sermon. We're the body of Jesus. He's working through us to do his work in the world. By the way, I heard another story about that, that um, Jesus ascended to heaven, you know, and he's talking to one of the angels and he points to his disciples, 11 scared guys, a couple of women. He says, there they are. That's my plan. I'm going to save the world through those people. And the angel looks. He says, um, you got a plan B? And Jesus says, nope. They're it. I'm going to save the world through my people. I'm going to bring hope. I'm going to bring healing. I'm going to bring help. I'm going to bring justice. I'm going to bring salvation through the power of the Spirit working through my people in the world. We're it. There's no plan B. We're it. So, first, they went to the community. Secondly, they got their eyes on the sovereign God in prayer. Third, they looked at the scripture and realized, wow, we're reliving this. Jesus is living his life through us. That's so awesome. Then finally, in verse 29, they get to their actual petition, what they actually asked for. Now imagine, and you know, I don't want to go too far on this, but the day may come, but imagine if we're sitting here and the whole power of the secular world was attacking us. And um, the whole power of the religious authorities were attacking us. What would we pray for? (laughs) And they're at the door. They're at the gate. I've been in uh, rooms where there was a knock on the door and we looked and it was the police, the internal secret service. What do you do? What do you pray for? I would pray, help! Do something! Help! Um, I actually had that in Azerbaijan where the... In Azerbaijan, there's two languages, Russian and Azeri. And uh, the police came to the door and it was an apartment and where the students were meeting and uh, they whipped out their UNO cards, which they do when the police come. And UNO party! And uh, so the police came in and uh, looked around and they found on the, they had left, the students had left a list of everybody's name in the group, Christian group, Muslim country. And the policeman said, it's too bad I don't know Russian. I can't read this. He walked away. <laughs> right. Um, so that's what we would pray, like, help, blind their eyes. Right. What did these guys pray? Boldness. They didn't pray for help. They didn't pray for protection. They didn't pray to blind the eyes of the authorities. Lord, help us be more bold in our proclamation of the gospel. Wow. And what is boldness? I I define it as just a really clear, respectful statement of the truth. That's boldness, a really clear statement of the truth. Not being obnoxious, not pounding on people, 
Just stay in truth, clear way, with respect. That's boldness. That's what Peter did. By what name do you, you know, did you do this miracle? Peter says, well, I didn't do this miracle. I did it in the power of Jesus. Short, clear, bold. States the truth. This is hard, though. I find it hard. Maybe you don't. Some of you are really gifted evangelists. I'm not. Um, I'm an introvert. I'm what you call a chicken evangelist. There are gifted evangelists, powerful evangelists, and people like me who are afraid. And um, I'm conflict avoidant. <laughs> and it's hard. And even telling my profession. I mean, I used to work in the communist days. I lived in Vienna, and there was a whole bunch of mission agencies that went into East Europe at the time with the gospel and Bibles and all that. And each each organization, each mission had their own very strict security rules. We weren't even supposed to tell each other what we do, even the fellow missionaries. And we all went to the same church, right? So after church, you're having coffee. Hey, what do you do? Oh, I'm in literature distribution. <laughs> you know, what do you do? I'm in uh, import. Export, I, you know, counsel people. <laughs> and, but I got used to that. That really, whoa, that really um, got down into me. And so I'm on a plane in good old America, and the guy next to me says, what do you do? My first response is always, oh, I, you know, work in uh, leadership development, <laughs> right, for young people. And then I have to kick myself. <laughs> they know I'm a missionary. In fact, I recruit missionaries. And then see the reaction. <laughs> you know, Becky Pippert, the great, the great evangelist with InterVarsity, she has this hilarious story, and she tells it better. But when somebody asks her on a plane what she does, she says, I work for InterVarsity. And she pauses. Christian Fellowship. And then she pauses, and by that time, the guy's thinking, she's, it's a sports club. So she says, yeah, I play basketball for Jesus. We never lose a game, you know. And then she tells him what she really does and tells him about Jesus, and it's great. But I find it hard. I have to really pray for boldness. And so did they. So if you see in verse 29, they prayed for boldness. And in verse 31, God answered. They spoke the word of God boldly. <laughs> Within two verses, he answered their prayer for boldness. But then in verse 30, their next prayer was, Lord, keep working. We know you're working through us. Stretch out your hand. Keep working through us. We want to see signs and wonders. Now, you see that, signs and wonders, and I know what you're going to say. Wow, it's too bad. We don't see anything like that today. They had it at the time of Jesus, but too bad. We don't see God work in that way. No. God's still working. The Holy Spirit hasn't quit. Right? God's still working. And I have something very bold and clear and simple to say to you. You want to see signs and wonders? Do something. Take a risk. Pray and ask God, what would be your risk for you? Because for each one of us, it's different. Do something where you take a risk. And God will show you something wonderful. You'll see signs and wonders as you take a risk and do something. Ask the Williamses who packed their kids into the van and drove around South America for two or three or four months. They've got stories. <laughs> Ask them. They've seen signs and wonders. Ask Mark Finley, mild-mannered airline pilot <laughs> who went to Ukraine to hang out with some students two or three years ago. Now he's got these relationships and he sees God working in their lives. 
he sees signs and wonders. Um, yeah, ask the Sherbecks. Ask the people who went on the Dominican team to the Dominican Republic these last 10, 15 years. Let them tell you about children that they loved and children who were transformed. They've seen signs and wonders. Just step out and do something. Right after the service this morning, um, Steve Tadovich, who's an elder, came up to me and said that as he was praying well, a couple years ago, he felt God called him to the least appreciated job in the church. He's an elder. He's a great evangelist. If you know Steve, he's really a great evangelist. He felt called to make the coffee for the adult class. I didn't know that till this morning. I, I thought the coffee was made by Heisel Mention, you know, uh, elves. I had no idea who, who made the coffee. I'd show up for Sunday school, and there's the coffee. And it's Steve, an elder, an evangelist, makes the coffee, he said. And he has seen signs and wonders. God answered prayer. People come in and talk to him. He talks to them. People come in off the street as he's making coffee. And he talks to them about the gospel. He has seen signs and wonders because he stepped out to do something simple. But that's a risk for him. And, you know, in my case, I mean, I've seen spectacular things. I've seen Muslim young men come to Christ through dreams. I've seen a storm stop on a mountain in the country of Georgia. I saw the Berlin Wall come down. And you say, well, you know, that's your job, Bob. You kind of go around the world and see stuff, right? Um, here's one, though. Another true confessions. I don't know my neighbors. Um, I travel so much that my house is kind of a place I lay my head between trips, <laughs> right? I do not know my neighbors. So I shared that with my wife around Easter. I don't know the neighbors. And of course, she's like, all right, have I got an idea for you. And she made some Easter cookies and she got six little baskets. She put the cookies in the baskets and she cut out little Bible verses about the resurrection. And she put one in each basket, put a little bow on it, wrote a little note and said, hi, this is from your neighbors, Bob and Patricia Graben. Here's our address. Here's our phone number. She hands them to me and says, go. <laughs> right? And she almost literally pushed me out the door. <laughs> so I'm going out the door with <laughs> cookies, baskets, the day before Easter. And... Uh, Walking across the street, I was scared. Heart pumping, you know, flushed, nerves. I'm an introvert. I can face down, you know, stuff in Romania, but walk across the street with a box of cookies? That's hard, okay? And so, walk across the street, <laughs> So two houses in front, two houses in back, two houses on the side. And uh, six houses, one guy wasn't home. Two people came to the door, said thank you, took the thing, and that was it. And I had three awesome conversations. Three awesome conversations that will lead to more conversations about the gospel and invitations to come with me to this church and so on and so forth. Because she put, pushed me out the door to deliver some cookies. I took a risk. For me, that was a risk. For you, you're probably extroverts, just know everybody, not me. That was a risk for me. I saw God work. Signs and wonders. Step out and do something that God's called you to do. That's a risk. So there you have it. A prayer meeting, right? They're under pressure, under persecution, starting. First thing they do, go to the community. Then they start to pray. They get their eyes on God, sovereign Lord. They prayed with faith. They looked to the scriptures. They saw Jesus working through them. They prayed for boldness. And Jesus kept working. Here's an application for all of us. Um, 
join a small group. <laughs> in our church here at High Point, we're really pushing small groups. If you're not part of a small group, and you're not part of some other small group in a, in a parachurch ministry or something, join a small group. Talk to Pastor Lloyd, Pastor Nick, Lisa, somebody. Join a small group. And in your small group, you will have a missionary assigned to you. There's a missionary from the church. They're on the board out there. Each small group has a missionary. Pray for that missionary specifically. Get to know them. If they're local, a lot of them are, invite them to your meeting. Ask them questions. Ask them their biggest success, their biggest failure. What can you pray for them? If they're not local, if they're foreign, um, there's this miracle thing called Skype or Google Hangout or all these other neat things. Skype in your missionary. And again, interview them, talk to them, get to know them. What are their prayer requests? And then pray specifically for them. Or we have a wonderful prayer meeting here in the church, 645 every Wednesday. I went last week and really felt the power of God's Spirit come to prayer meeting. But get to some kind of meeting where you can pray for a missionary. That will affect the world. I got two, two quick stories for you. One is I started out as a, uh, the university staff in New Jersey at Rutgers University. And there are a number of churches that supported our ministry in that area. And so one Sunday afternoon, I decided, well, I'll go to one of the churches that has an evening service. It's a great church, good pastor. And so I didn't call the pastor. I didn't tell him I was coming. I just went. So I got there early, sat towards the back. And I was just sitting there, you know, reading the bulletin and, and preparing myself. And a lady taps me on the shoulder, a lady sitting behind me. And she says, are you Bob Grauman? Yeah. She says, good. How's the, how's the new small group in Hardenburg dorm? I'm like, what? <laughs> and she said, well, um, you send us a prayer letter. And we have a group in the church. We meet once a week. We get all the prayer letters from our missionaries. And we pray them line by line. Line by line. And your second request in your last prayer letter was for a new small group, evangelistic group, you want to start at Hardenburg Dorm at Rutgers University. How's it going? I said, well, actually, it's going great. And thank you. There's a church prays for their missionaries. Okay. You have a missionary assigned to your small group. Pray for them. You never know. My other story is um, I was the air, air director in New Jersey, InterVarsity. I thought that's what I'd do the rest of my life. I had no intention of being a missionary until a friend of mine ha happened to be working in Romania. 1983, this was 1983, communist Romania, heavy, heavy communist persecuting the church. And he said, we've got this group of pastors, underground secret pastors, and um, they have no idea of their heritage. The government has told them that Protestantism was invented in America in 1956, right? They don't know anything about their heritage. And so I had just gotten a degree, in, a master's degree in church history. So my friend said, can you come for two weeks, meet with these pastors, come with me, meet with these pastors, and just give them a survey of church history. Okay. I had never been out of America before. I had to get a passport in order to do that, right? So I met my friend in Vienna, and he says, uh, guess what? Something's come up. I can't go. You're on your own. Right? So much for community, right? And he gives me this, this piece of paper. I swear on the Bible, this is true. Everything in this story is true. Um, gives me this piece of paper with instructions where to go, what to do. You go out to the hotel at 801 and stand in front of this statue and for three minutes and then sit on the third bench to the right of the statue at 803. At 808, a guy will come by with a blue, uh, pink bag and wink, follow him. Sure, right. So <laughs> that is absolutely true. 
and he said, destroy this instructions, right? So I'm on this train from Vienna, and I get to the border of Romania, communist Romania. And middle of the night, floodlights come on. The train is surrounded by the army, machine guns, dogs. Uh, did I mention machine guns? Um, and then they come on to the car. The train, I was sitting in the back of this car, train car. And they start ripping people's luggage apart. And then I realized that I thought, you know, these pastors, they're poor in Romania. They probably don't have many Christian books. So I'll bring them a suitcase full of Christian books with titles like Becoming a Christian, <laughs> Bible and Life, How to Share the Gospel in Communist Country. I don't know. All, you know, all kinds of <laughs> stuff like that. A whole suitcase full. And they're coming, the guards are coming, and they're ripping people's luggage apart. And uh, swear on a Bible, I'll tell you. And my first thought was, great, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in a Romanian prison, doing prison ministry. <laughs> I'll learn the language. Well, that's good. Um, second thought was, you jerk. What an idiot. How could you do that? And thirdly then, the overwhelming sense people were praying for me. Because I had gotten about 300 people committed to pray for me every day on that trip. And at midnight in Romania, during the day in America, they are praying for me. And I had this unbelievable peace. Unbelievable sense of peace. I was just ready for anything. And so they, the guards came to the person in front of me, in the seat in front of me, and they ripped his luggage apart. Then the train started to lurch, and two guards looked at each other, shrugged. One of them came running over to me, shook my hand, and said in English, have a nice time in Romania, and they jumped off the train. <laughs> I was the only person in that car whose luggage they did not check, okay? Because of prayer. Not because of my brilliance. I mean, I'd never do that again. That was stupid. If you ever do, if you ever go to a communist or Muslim country, don't do that, okay? But people prayed. I saw the, I said, that's it. I believe in the power of prayer and in prayer, you know, God using prayer. Um, it was amazing. So pray for your missionaries. God will use you to affect the world to affect the world. That time in Romania was the hardest thing I'd ever done to that point. I was going out of the country, and uh, that time they did find my Bible and yelled at me, but I was out <laughs> by that time. But I thought, yes, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. I want to do this the rest of my life, and I did. And so that prayer for me, that changed. That changed me. That changed me. And you pray for missionaries. God uses you to affect the world. And that's how I was going to end this talk until um, three weeks ago, on April 2nd, I think. April 2nd. Um, yeah, let me go ahead to it. To Garissa College in Kenya, where we have an IFES group, an intervarsity kind of style group. Christian students meet there, a lot of them on that campus, and they have a daily prayer meeting at 5.30 a.m. every day. Very committed students. They pray every day at 5.30 a.m. On April 2nd at 5.30 a.m. on the dot of 5.30, the terrorists showed up. They shot their way into the college, and the first thing they did was throw a hand grenade into the prayer meeting. Killed all the students. Then they went into the dorm and systematically killed um, 136 other Christian students. They went room by room, and either they said to the student, quote something from the Koran, if they couldn't, they shot him, 
or are you a Christian? If they said yes, you're dead. A massacre of 148 students who believe in Jesus, who did nothing more than go to a prayer meeting, and they were massacred. So we think, why didn't God protect them? Isn't God sovereign? Well, I don't know. God is sovereign. He's in control. My sense is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. My sense is within two years, we'll see a revival among students in Kenya. Maybe a revival among students in America and throughout the world as students, Christian students, consider the possibility of a gun in their face and the question, are you a Christian? And when they get, come to Christ and get baptized, they have to realize, yes, this could cost me my life. If the young people in America would realize that, there would be a revival in this country. And those students are now worshiping Jesus. He's wiping away their tears. They're in a place where there's no more tears. There's no more sorrow. There's no more terrorists. There's just the joy of worshiping Jesus. And I think, my opinion, at the great banquet in the last day, the great, um, the great banquet of the king, the marriage banquet of King Jesus to the church, I think um, there'll be a head table. And I don't think Billy Graham will be there on the head table, even though he's led more people to Jesus than anybody in the history of the world. I'm not sure if Bill Bright will be at the head table, even though he's founded an organization that has led millions and millions of young people to Jesus. I think at the head table will be some 18-year-old African students who went to prayer meeting at 5.30 in the morning because prayer meetings are revolutionary. God uses them to change the world when you pray for missionaries. And by the way, Satan hates them. Satan hates them. That's why they're persecuted. And um, let me say too, I hope this isn't yours. I hope this isn't yours. But I can imagine a prayer meeting, a small group meeting where people come together here in Madison somewhere and they have a great time and they eat and they share and they fellowship and they talk and then they say, oops, time to go. Joe, would you close in prayer? They forgot to pray for their missionary. They missed a chance to affect the world. When you pray, really pray. And you pray with specificity for a missionary, with fervor, with faith that affects the world. Dear friends, it'd be great if you all felt called to get on a plane and become missionaries. Wonderful. Talk to me. That's what I do. I recruit missionaries. But you don't have to. To change the world, to affect the world, what you have to do, be bold in your witness, Come together with the community. Seek God, Sovereign Lord. Then pray specifically, boldly, passionately for each other, for your friends, and for a missionary. And the room will shake. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us this avenue of prayer. Lord, forgive us for making it just a cliche. Oh, I'll pray for you. Lord, help us.
to be people of passionate, prevailing prayer. I pray for the small groups in this church and the small groups in InterVarsity and Crusade and NAVS and the other groups on campus that are praying. Lord, help them to pray with passion. And as those five students 200 years ago, Lord, maybe you'll call some of them to be missionaries, but you'll call all of them to affect your world. Thank you, Lord. You're the sovereign God. You're in control. We just want to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.